God has challenged me with the concept of, the, of a transformational ecclesia. And what that means is, is that when the Apostle Paul went to the city of Ephesus in Acts chapter, I think it's 17 or 18, I'm having a brain cramp right now, but it's a small brain, don't worry, there's no damage can be done. <laughs> but when he went to Ephesus, it was a pagan city filled with witchcraft. It was a godless city. And within four decades, Ephesus became the center of Christianity in the ancient world. The Apostle John would spend his last days ministering from Ephesus. That challenges me. I want to see, I want to see a church in our community that blesses the community, makes it stronger and mightier, and really has impact. That has always been my dream. And so when I look at Ephesus, I began to ask the questions of, of how God transformed a city through an ecclesia. And let me say something right here and right now. There are no lone rangers in the kingdom. You don't get to do Christianity on your own. Jesus is not coming back for individual Christians. He's coming back for the bride of Christ. And you need to wrap your head around that. If you struggle with churches, with pastors, with those kind of issues of authority, then those are things that Jesus needs to work on in you and in us. They are not a reason to just dismiss it all and do your own thing. Do you understand? Michael, you sound like a parent right now. I'm a dad of eight sons. I sound like that sometimes. Okay. God sent the Apostle Paul. And so... Paul said in Acts chapter, I mean Romans chapter 11, verse 13, he said, Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, so we're all Gentiles, unless you are a Hebrew or a Jew in this room, and I don't know it. We're all Gentiles in this room, okay? There's Jews and Gentiles, and that's it. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. I am an apostle, and that's what we're talking about today. Paul was an apostle. He came to, to show us something. And we're going to talk about the meaning of the word apostle. apostle. Uh, we're going to talk about how the whole point of this series is that Paul is laying a, a, a foundation and a framework for the ecclesia, which is the chosen assembly. We have been calling it the church. I'm using the word ecclesia more because your definition of church likely does not agree with Jesus' use of the term ecclesia. Does that make sense? Many of you think church is a building, or you think it's a religious system, or you think it's an authority structure of uh, ecclesiastical means where you have bishops and priests and all these kinds of things. None of that is ecclesia. That is how men have organized ecclesia. And I'm not saying there's anything inherently wrong with how men have organized ecclesia for their different streams or theological views. But what I am saying is this. Jesus meant something very specific with ecclesia, and Jesus raised up a man named Paul to teach the Gentiles how to be the ecclesia. Does that make sense? So today, we're going to talk about vision and how Paul's vision changed, and how we're going to apply that is to our vision we need, we need corrective lenses. We need to see more clearly. 
We need to make sure that what we're doing is in line with and surrendered to what God is doing. This is important. This is critically important. In fact, this is so important that this breaks my heart because there's a passage in Matthew 7 about verses 24 through 28 where Jesus declares to a group of people who thought they loved him that they would not enter into the glories of heaven because they did not do the things he wanted them to do. They did the things they wanted to do. And so the issue today is, is your vision for you? Is your vision for God? Or is your vision from God? And my argument is, if it ain't from God, Michael, your grammar, if it ain't from God, (laughs) it's worthless. It's garbage. Michael, that's harsh. We're talking about standing before Jesus thinking you're about to walk into the glories of heaven and him saying, I don't know you. Can you think of anything more horrifying than that? Because I can't. It's like, Michael, that's really serious. Exactly. Exactly. So, Paul had a vision. Well, actually, let me get into apostle first. I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, so the word apostle is not a Hebrew word. It's a Greek word. Okay, you're like, I don't get the language things. Okay, your Old Testament was written in a lot of Hebrew, ancient Chaldee, some things like that. Then the New Testament is written in Greek. Okay? So somewhere in that 400 years between the end of the Old Testament, the, the last words of Malachi, or Malachi, if you want to say it wrong, no, it's, it's actually Malachi, but, but mess with people every chance you get. That's my motto, mess with people. So the last words of, between the last words of Malachi and the first words of Matthew, you have a 400, well, actually, there's a, another book. James is actually 400 years there. But there is a, there's enough of a change in the world that the core language shifts from, in the nation of Israel from Hebrew to Greek. Think about that. I mean, America's been around, what, 250 years or somewhere in the neighborhood? I don't, I don't do math. It's a preacher thing. I mean, you ask a preacher to count people, they count 100 for every 10. It's crazy. That's why they can't balance their checkbooks. Um, the younger people are going, what's a checkbook? Uh, anyway. <clears throat> Imagine a shift in your culture so extreme that the core language of your nation changes. That's what happened between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And what happened? Well, Alexander the Great happened. The book of Daniel prophesied that Alexander the Great would happen. And what did Alexander the Great do? He, he Hellenized, or maybe he made the world Greek, is what he did. He did everything he could to make the whole world Greek. So the language, the core language of the world was Greek, all these kind of things. So in the Greek culture, and this is mainly a time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, in that Greek culture, there were these apostles. At first, all they were were ship captains. They would take ships out, fight wars, deliver trades, whatever they were. They were apostles of Greek culture. Then they became settlers. And then what would happen is there would be an apostle in a, in a group, an ecclesia around him, and they would go to another culture, a, pay, a culture that was non-Greek, such as Israel, and they would establish a Greek culture in the midst of a foreign culture. 
And so that was the roots of the word apostle. It's not a religious word. It's not a Christian word. When the apostles coined it, when Jesus used it or the disciples used it, it was not a religious word in any context at the time. Neither was ecclesia. It was someone who went out and represented another culture, and then by extension established another culture. And then one last thing you should know is that an apostle had the authority of the sending culture. And what that meant was they could sign contracts. They could establish agreements. They could build trade patterns. They had the power and the authority to operate as, uh, uh, as establishers of their culture. And whatever they said stood. They could bind by contract, loose by destruction of contract. They had the authority to do that. Some of you Christians in the room are starting to put things together already. If you're not, don't worry. It's no no problem. That's not our main focus today. What I want you to see today, though, is that God raised up an apostle, Paul. That's what they were called by the time the New Testament began to be written, is apostles. And the apostle Paul Excuse me. Lost my way here. It's okay. It happens when you have a small brain like mine. I guess before I get in the Apostle Paul, I got one more thing I need to cover. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. Paul writes that Jesus, when he says he himself, he's talking about Jesus. He says, Jesus gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, that is to build up the body of Christ. Let me ask you a question. Do you think verse 12 is about those of us in the room? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, that is to build up the body of Christ. Do you think that verse is about us in the room? Seems like it is. Seems like we're the saints. Seems like we're supposed to be built up. Then he goes on to say, until we attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, a mature person attaining to the measure of Christ's full stature. So you see this verse where Jesus has things that he gives to the ecclesia, the church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Now, if you grew up in a a faith that was a cessationist faith, what's that mean? Fancy word. It just means you're a ceaser. You think things stopped, okay? And so if you grew up in a cessationist faith, then you think of those five things that are listed. Apostle, say apostle. Apostle. Prophet. Prophet. Pastor. Pastor. Teacher. Teacher. Oh, I missed evangelist. I got them out of order. Because there is no order. Never mind. Okay, back to it. (laughs) Just kidding. So If you grew up in a cessationist faith, you think that two of those no longer exist. Okay? That all that are left are evangelists. They go around, ask for money, have Big Ten meetings, depending on the faith stream you grew up in. (laughs) Pastors, you think of me as a pastor, but that's not actually my best function. And then teachers, academics, those who instruct. You think that's all that's left. So so I'm going to ask a question that will tell you where I land on the spectrum. Okay, and it's this. Do you really think that Jesus gave the church five functions, as I'm going to call them for today, so that they could only have three left to function with later? Do you think the church today has less than the church of the first century? You say, so it's, a, it's an interesting question. 
And you may be sitting there going, well, yeah, you, depending on where you were raised and all those kind of things. But let me just tip my hand. I'm a continuist. I think things continued. I think I take 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and 4, uh, I think it's first, it may be 2 Corinthians, pretty literal, where Paul says that the new covenant is an ever-increasing glory, meaning that things are going to continue and they're going to get stronger and that the promises of God are going to continue on those things. I also believe, Paul said in Romans 15, 4, he says, such things were written in the scriptures long ago to teach us and the scriptures give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. And so I think the new covenant, the, the, what we're doing as Christians today is we're waiting for God's promises to be fulfilled, not waiting for them to disappear. I think it's a, a different thing. Does that, does that make sense? You can disagree with me. I mean, so many people do. It's It's okay. You don't have to, to accept everything. In fact, what you should do with anything I say is you should go to the Scriptures yourself and think about these things and study these things and let the Holy Spirit teach you. My point is simply this. The, the apostle that we see in Ephesians 4, there's a couple different ways that that thing can apply. One is as an office. And so that's where you have Paul coming in. He called himself one born out of due season. And what he meant was, was that the first, we're going to say 11 disciples, because Judas, you know, did things that didn't turn out well for him. He decided to hang around. <clears throat> You're like, dad jokes. These are dad jokes. I know. Bible dad jokes, so also known as preacher jokes. But anyway, um, the 11 disciples spent three and a half years with Jesus. In the, in the flesh, him in person. He instructed them. They stepped into an office of apostle. But then there's Paul. Paul didn't get the three and a half years with Jesus in person. Paul got three plus years with Jesus in Arabia in a supernatural way. You can read about that in Galatians and Corinthians. There's a couple passages. Ephesians 2.20 references it. Uh, it's one of those things that you're like, you're like, I have questions, you make a note, you ask me, email me later, and I'll do my best to help you, okay? The point is, is that Paul was the one born out of due season, and he occupied an office of apostle, but his was unique in that it was to us, Gentiles, okay? That's his role. I do believe that every church has people who function as apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists. It's called the fivefold ministry. I'm not going to get into it a lot today, but I just I believe that all those functions exist today, and uh, they may not look like some people. Some people wear them. Let me tell you something about the kingdom that really jacks everybody up. <clears throat> Leaders in the kingdom are servants. They serve. They wash feet. That's why leadership in the church doesn't look like leadership in the world. One of the worst things, okay, this is Michael ranting. One of the worst things that the, the church has done is it has tried to copy the systems of the world and run our churches like businesses with CEOs. That ain't how she works. Not in the kingdom, okay? So I do believe these functions exist. I also, continuing my rant, rock star Christianity needs to go away. We need to stop putting, we need to stop idolizing people. Don't get me wrong. I love, there's some great teachers and preachers out there, and I, I love to hear of them, and I could list off several names. But I'm going to tell you, the church has one king. There's one Lord, and his name is Jesus. It's not me, okay? 
All I am as a pastor is someone who, who serves the Word from week to week, tries to minister to you, and tries to demonstrate for you how to follow Jesus. I am a wreck. I fail often. I don't do things right. I'm grouchy. Sometimes I say things I shouldn't, okay? So if you're looking to idolize me, let me knock me off of that pedestal for you. It's not, I don't need that. Because when you put someone on the pedestal, all you're doing is holding them up so the enemy knows who's to take out. Okay? So, <clears throat> rock star Christianity, we, the church has, and by the way, just a bonus. <clears throat> Gosh, we're going to be here all day. <laughs> just a bonus. One of these days, if we are actually moving into the times that the apostle John prophesied in Revelation, if it happens in my lifetime, I will be jailed or killed. Yep. My wife and I have talked about it. You said, man, that's really depressing. I don't know what to tell you. When that happens, you won't have me to break the bread anymore. See? Or God could just take me out. And I won't be sad at all. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, man. I love you, but I'm like, I'm with Jesus. Out. Peace out, y'all. My, my point is, is that everyone here has to have a direct connect to Jesus. We need an ecclesia. We need the authority structure of an ecclesia, but we still have to have that direct connect to Jesus. Is that okay? Amen? All right. So that's not okay, Michael. Well, hang on. It gets worse. So let's start with Paul. Back to Paul. I want you to know that Paul had a vision before Paul had a vision. And this is what we have to address today. This is our job today. It's to determine our vision, where it is and where it's going. So here's Paul's vision before he got a vision. Meanwhile, Saul, pause, I should have clarified this earlier. Paul, Saul, same guy. Saul, Hebrew racist. Paul, apostle to the Gentiles. Same guy, changed by Jesus. Okay? All right. So meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. This is our second meeting of Saul slash Paul. Sounds like a sweet guy. <laughs> like, let's sit around and watch movies together. We'll Netflix and chill. <laughs> so he, Saul, went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way, the followers of the way, was what they initially called Christianity, or what we call Christianity today, he found there. And he wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. Oh, seems like such a lovely fellow, this Paul guy. This is where, this is where we meet him, and I, this is what you have to understand, this is what I have to understand, and this is what's kind of got me broken up today, is I don't want to be a guy with a vision like Paul. I don't want to be a guy with a vision like Paul, a vision that fills me with hate, a vision that fills me with destruction and stress and anger and frustration. I don't want that vision. What you and I need to know is that Paul had a vision and it was concerned with his self-advancement. I don't mean this as an insult to anybody. This is, I just want to kind of weasel into your thinking a little bit. Paul was living his best life now. 
And it was all about Paul. And it was about no one outside of Paul. Paul wanted to excel in his religion. He wanted to be a leader in the Pharisee faith. He wanted to, to advance in Judaism and in temple worship. And he was so, so, so proud of what he had accomplished. And then one day, educated, studied, hard-working Saul bumped into this simple, blue-collar dude named Stephen. Stephen was a nobody. Stephen was as ordinary as ordinary gets. And when Saul, who we mean to know as Paul, hears Stephen speaking in the power of God, and here he's looking at this nobody with no education, no affirmation in Judaism, this unknown, and he's standing there telling people not only of their sins, but that he personally knows who the Messiah is. That's what set Paul off. Here's this nobody who knows God's Messiah. And here's Paul who's worked his tail off since he was old enough to not have a tail. <laughs> I just realized how dumb that was. <clears throat> He'd worked his, his, his self to death in his faith. And, and here this guy who has no right, no, he hasn't worked hard enough to know Jesus, to know the Messiah. He says he knows him and Paul doesn't. Do you see how offensive that is to Paul's pride? And so Paul's vision is consistent with his lifestyle and, and he's filled with hate. And it blows my mind that the guy who wrote 1 Corinthians 13 is the guy we're talking about right now. What a change. And so now I'll pause for reflection. What's our vision? It's not enough to just have a vision. It's the new year. Man, people are selling books like crazy about what you're going to do with your life in 2022. Where are you going to go from here? What are your goals? What are your resolutions? What are you really going to commit to for the next seven days? <laughs> it's possible to have an amazing vision that opposes God. Do you understand that? I'm, I don't care if you're a leader, a Christian, a business owner. It's very possible that you are about your own vision. And that vision is actually trying to do harm to the kingdom. We really shouldn't be hard on Paul. And I know we, we hear about Paul and we're like, well, yeah, I have a vision and it's about me, but I would never kill anybody. And you only say that because you don't read science fiction like I do. <laughs> If you explored enough of that, you would know it, it, uh, that civility is a mere, is a veneer on society and, and not as real as we might think. And so, I want us to take some time today and think about our vision for our life, where we're going. You're like, well, Michael, I don't have a vision. Oh, you do have a vision. 
You see yourself going somewhere. January 1st came around, and when you woke up early or late, if you're like me, you can't sleep late, whatever it was, you got up and you began to think about what you're going to do with your life and what you want your life to be like in a year, throughout the year, what you want your family to be like, what you want your kids to be like. And that's great. There's nothing wrong with that unless it's godless. Here's the shocker. This is what they won't tell you. This does not sell books. God is not about helping you accomplish. He's really not. A lot of people think that. They come to church. They, they, they turn to Christ, so to speak. They, they're trying to be the best version of themselves, and that's admirable. But God's purpose on earth is not to put you on a pedestal and glorify you. God's purpose on earth is to enthrone Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords and to put sin, death, and hell underneath His feet. God has a purpose, and we're part of the purpose. Not God's like going to help you build your own kingdom. There's only one kingdom God's building, and it's the kingdom of Jesus. It's not the kingdom of America. It's not the kingdom of you. You understand? Sobering, I know. But the point is, we have to look at our vision because Hebrews 12, 27 says this really sobering thing. It says, this means that all of creation will be shaken and removed. All of creation will be shaken and removed. We don't actually know who wrote Hebrews. Some people think it was Paul. Some think it was Apollos. Some people, we just don't know who technically wrote it. Doesn't matter, we know God gave it to us. The authors of the New Testament were merely pens in the hands of God. Some of them skipped a bit, and some of them bled a bit, but nonetheless, pens in the hand of God. And here you see that everything you see and behold on this planet is going to be shaken. Everything you love on this planet that's temporal in the natural is going to be shaken. So since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, that's why Paul said we live by things we can't see. We live by faith and not by sight. Let us be thankful and please God by worshiping him with holy fear and awe, for our God is a devour, devouring fire. I really want to preach another sermon about that, but I'm going to stay on task, as boring as that is. I just want you to consider your vision in life, and I want you to ask yourself, is it my vision, is it for God, or is it from God? And my argument is the only one that stands, lasts, and will accomplish is one that is from God. Okay? Okay? Paul's vision. Now, great point of reflection. If you're using the study guides, there's some questions there to talk about your small groups. Let's move on now to God's vision. So there's Paul's vision, but Paul's vision changed. Paul met Jesus. And it changed. And here's how it changed. In Acts 9.15, the Lord said to Saul, our Paul, he said, go for Saul. I'm sorry, he's writing, he's talking to Ananias here. He says, go for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Doesn't that sound like a great invitation to follow Jesus? <laughs> Right there. Come forward today and let the suffering begin. Come on down, man. 
God has a perfect plan for your life, and it's full of pain. But that was Paul's, God's message to Paul. So I want to see, I want to show you God's vision here a little bit. First, I want you to see that in God's vision, there is a message. This is what we call the good news or the gospel. And what that simply means, if, if I can simplify it, is God sent his son. God, how I believe, I believe that God the Son, I believe that in the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and I believe that God the Son left his divinity and the power of being God in a locker in heaven because the Father sent him to earth, and he came to earth, and he, he was born of a virgin. He was born here on this planet as the Son of God, but he did not operate as God on earth. He operated as a man on earth filled with the Holy Spirit of God. I think Jesus taught us, showed us an example. We often look at Jesus as the, the exception, and truly he was. But we miss the point that much of what he taught us and demonstrated for us was illustration and example of how we should live. And so God sent the Son. The Son came to the earth completely submitted to the Father. Everything he did on earth, he was accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit within him. He gave us a perfect illustration. He came and, <clears throat> hang on, I wanted, there was something I thought I had in my notes and I lost it. It happens sometimes, this insanity thing. So the point is that Jesus is the answer that you seek. That's the, the message. That you and I are in trouble in ways we can't comprehend, we can't, comprehend, can't articulate. We feel this deep incongruity, this deep conflict within us, and Jesus is the answer for that. You're alone in ways that can never be satisfied, and only Jesus can get there. You're your own worst critic. You're your, you're your own saboteur. You're your worst enemy. We are drowning in ways that defy articulation, and yet it is still it's true and it's real. And so Paul said in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. The good news tells us how God makes us right in His sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, it's through faith that a righteous person has life. So Jesus came to earth, born of a virgin, the Son of God, baptized in the Holy Spirit, tested and tempted by Satan himself. And then he comes and he teaches us and reveals to us the kingdom. That was his term. He used it often. I come to bring you the kingdom. Prepare the way for the kingdom. He used this expression all the time. And the kingdom is so foreign to us, we have to learn a new way to learn about the kingdom. And Jesus began to teach that. But that wasn't all he did. He healed people, delivered people. He restored people. He forgave people. And for all of this, he was arrested. He was tried. He was convicted. He was condemned. He was abused. He was rejected. He was crucified. And three days later, he got over it. Three days later, Jesus lived. That's the claim of Christianity, by the way. 
If you don't know where you're at with your faith, if you don't know whether or not you should follow Jesus, you don't have to worry about all the the periphery issues. There's one issue you have to decide. Did Jesus Christ die on a cross and rise from the dead three days later like he said he would? If he did, then you've got to deal with Jesus. When Jesus stepped out of the ground, he defeated Satan. He took back the keys of authority. Everything Adam handed to Satan in a moment of stupidity, Jesus took back in three days of power. Death is defeated, sin is overcome, Satan is wrecked, and Adam and Eve are restored. Adam and Eve. Adam's cowardice for not standing with Eve in that moment of temptation, because that's what happened, guys. Genesis 3, the Bible tells us Adam's right there with her when Satan's tempting her, and he's got nothing to say. Makes you want to slap that dude, doesn't it? But Jesus redeemed that. And he also redeemed Eve, who fell for the temptation and was deceived by the enemy. See, Adam wasn't deceived. He was stupid. (laughs) Eve was deceived. And Jesus has restored them both. That's beautiful. That's the gospel, man. So there's a message. And in that message, there is power. There is power. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power. Power for what, Michael? Power for salvation and forgiveness. Yeah, we talk about that a lot. We all know that one, or hopefully we do. You can be forgiven. If you will just release your past successes and sins into the hands of Jesus Christ, you can be forgiven. Your past be restored. Your soul be redeemed. You can be saved. This is what the gospel does. It, 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 you can be accompanied by Jesus into your loneliest, darkest, most fear-filled place. Your eternal problems with God, which are worse than you could ever imagine, are over because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And your own worst enemy, who is you, is nailed to the cross with Jesus and ended because of what Jesus Christ has done. So there's power for salvation There's power for healing. I was talking with someone last night on the phone. And you're like, you were on the phone? If you know me, you know how much a miracle that was. People call me out and I'm going, why aren't you texting me? I was talking with someone on the phone last night and they were telling me about their pain and their anger from their wounds in their life. And I want you to know something. Jesus died for that. Every abuse, every accusation, every wicked name thrown at you, every lie you've ever been told, every failure you've ever made that came out of your belief that you were something that you were not, all of that, Jesus' stripes, were laid on his back to heal you from your pain. And your losses. This is the gospel, man. Too many people think the gospel is just you commit your life to Jesus and you get to go to heaven when you die. And so you're waiting to be saved. The problem with that is that the word salvation is not a future word. It is a, actually, it's an eternal word. 
It's a past, present, and future word. And so the minute you, you come to faith in Christ, it proves that there's been an eternal work in your life already. But then also it demonstrates that you are now being saved. You live in a new kingdom. And so there's this healing that Jesus has for you. The healing that I call of the places that can't be seen. But I also believe, because I am a continuist, I also believe that God also heals things that can be seen. I think there are a couple of reasons that you can trust this. One, healing brings glory to God. Healing's about glory. It's not about glory to a man or a ministry. It's about God. And I believe that healing's about glory. I believe that healing's about authority. I believe that healing is from Jesus, directly from him. He's the one that has the power and the strength to do that. And then I I think healing is also, and this is the most challenging part, I believe, it's about trust. You see, sometimes you trust God for the healing, and sometimes you trust God for the patience. You know? Because I, I, I I can't tell God what to do. That's not what authority is. Authority is not saying, okay, God, do stuff. That's not authority. I can prove, I mean, it's just, it's like the police officer that pulled you over to give you the ticket on your way to church this morning for driving recklessly. Hope that wasn't you. Um, he, he's not just dreaming up stuff for the judges to deal with. He's acting at behest of laws that have been ordained and made. And so it's the same with authority in the kingdom. So I do believe that God heals. And sometimes you're trusting God to heal you now. And sometimes you're waiting for his healing. And sometimes the healing comes on the other side of your tombstone. All I know is that sooner or later, you're going to be 100% right. Why? Because Jesus died for all that. Died for all of it. I don't know the timing. I just know there's power for healing. I know there's power also. And this is the one I hate the most, actually. Power for suffering. Because... (laughs) That was Paul's call. How much he will suffer. I don't get suffering. I don't like it. I kind of think it's dumb. (laughs) You see, but I don't always know what's valuable. Like, if you brought some pyrite and some gold, I'm not sure I could tell the difference. Now, some of you in the room, probably the ladies could always tell the difference. Like, I know my wife could. She wouldn't even know. All I know, my wife loves the most expensive thing. That's that's the shit. Whatever it is. You put out two. If there was a Price is Right game with the most expensive thing, we would make bank. I'm telling you. All she'd have to do is pick the thing she liked. That's all. I could give you stories and illustrations. She's just an amazing lady, and she deserves the best. That's all. So, I can't tell you, though. I mean, like, I could look at a... A diamond ring and a cubic zirconia ring, and I would probably like the cheap one just because I like the cheap stuff, you know. I, I, but I wouldn't, I couldn't tell you, there's a lot of things in life that tell you what's valuable. And suffering is one of those things. I look at suffering, and, and I have friends that I love dearly who are suffering deeply right now. And I'm like, what is the purpose? What is the point? I don't see any value in this. The first century church in Rome suffered, suffered so, so awfully. They were so abused and murdered and tortured by Rome. 
But they held to the gospel and they held to their community. And 2,000 years later, the gospel and the community still thrive. And Rome is no more. Do you understand? I don't get the value of suffering, but God does. God knew that Paul's preaching was not going to establish the ecclesia that was going to change the world. God knew that Paul's suffering was going to do it. That Paul would have a message and he would suffer. So there's power in this message for restoration, healing, salvation, and forgiveness. But we have to not discount the reality that Christians go through difficult things and they suffer. And that God considers that valuable and God does something with that. So for those of you who are in the midst of some suffering right now, I'm not going to sit here and blow sunshine at you and tell you this is easy. I'm not going to give you one of those church state lines, you know. Well, you know, uh, God will never give you more than you can handle. I wish someone would slap that fool. God never said that. I'll give you comfort, though. He'll never give you more than he can handle. There's value in these things. And so now I come back to our vision for your life. And I just want to ask you, how valuable is it? What's worth something this next year? You see, it's really easy to find out what you value in life. Just look at your calendar and your bank statement. Where you spend your time, where you spend your money, that's what you care about. Michael, that's an oversimplification. Sure it is. So I want to ask you, as you approach this year, and as you, as you probably spent yesterday thinking about, what are we going to do with 22? It'd be a nice little thing, right? We write a book. What are we going to do with 22? It's my word, my phrase, I'm going to lose weight. I say that one every year. So far, it's working in antithesis. <laughs> so my, my goal this year is to gain weight. I'm going to see if it'll work the other way around. I want to ask you what the kingdom's worth to you in 2022. Is it worth your time? Is it worth being in community with some believers? I don't care how gifted you are. I don't care how the Holy Spirit has poured upon you things. But if you won't live in relationship with other believers, you are out of the Father's will. You are not where you need to be. And I understand churches hurt people. I could show you the scars. But if the kingdom is worth something, then the family is worth something. So I want to ask you to look at your vision this year. And and some of you have some great visions. And I don't want to discredit them. I just want to make sure they're from God. I don't want them to be for you or even for God. They have to be from Him. And I know that's challenging. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. We are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus. So we can do the good things He planned. He planned. Long ago. 
So let's conclude on how's your vision. What's important to you this year? What are you going to do with 22? I know you have obligations. You're a mom, a dad, a a child with parents, whatever you have, these responsibilities and roles. I get it. They're going to take a lot of your time, and I understand that. That's not really what I'm talking about. I'm talking about where are you in relationship to God's kingdom and God's plan and what God's doing on this earth? What are you going to do with this life you have? Is it really just about getting to the end of it, retiring comfortably, and then, you know, trying to die as peacefully as possible? Is that really what it's about? Because there's another generation that's coming after you that needs Jesus just as bad as you do. There are grandchildren and great-grandchildren generations ahead of us that it is important that they have access to Jesus just like you have access to Jesus. And the truth is, a lot of times, we don't even realize how powerful we are in the kingdom. We don't realize that a lot of the depression and the fear that you're experiencing is not even your own. It's the enemy's fear of you that's being radiated around you. And so let's stand together. Let's take a moment of worship. I have on my left, while you're standing, I have a cross. There are some post-it notes and some tacks. If you want to leave something behind from last year, you might just write on there 2021. Stunk. Stick it on there. It's fine. But I, I just, I want you to have a kinetic, an action to connect with what we're talking about today, the ability to let something go. I've also got Josiah and Hallie. They're going to be at tables on my right behind the prayer sign. There's a way that we can pray for you. But I want to worship a minute. And if you need to let something go from 21, that's what the cross is for. And if you need prayer over your vision for 22, that's what we're for over here. But let's sing. Let's ask God to open our eyes. Pastor Steve, I'm going to stay up here a minute and annoy people. Mm -hmm.